Hello, and welcome to Rethinking Legal Ops, a podcast by Speed Legal. I'm Ashwari Saxena, and here we talk to legal experts, industry leaders, and innovators about the many ways that legal tech is transforming the way we practice law. Today with us, with us, we have an amazing guest, David Horn. Uh, I'll let you introduce uh, yourself in just a second. Uh, but David is, um, is is amazing. He is an award-winning author of two books, The Funded Female and Add Then Multiply, both very important uh, books for entrepreneurs, especially um, uh, female uh, entrepreneurs. So I've really appreciated reading your book, uh, David, and I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us today for this conversation. And I'm just very excited to learn more and more about all the work that you're doing. And you're also the founder of Funding Focus, which is doing amazing work supporting diversity and entrepreneurship. But I'll let David uh, talk about that. Um, I'll, I'll let you take it from here, David. Great. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Ishwara. That's uh, that's a very kind introduction. And uh, hello, everybody. Lovely to be here. So my background quickly, um, I'm originally from Vancouver. I trained as a chartered accountant with PwC in Vancouver, uh, qualified with them and moved to Zurich, Switzerland uh, with PwC um, on a two-year contract. We ended up staying in Switzerland for six years. Um, I was two years with PwC and then my biggest client gave me the proverbial job offer you can't refuse. So I joined them, uh, moved with them to London and was another six years with them here in London. And then in 2000, I um, started to work with smaller businesses. I, I Between 2000 and 2010, I was the CFO of, of three companies that were very different, but all had one thing in common. So the first one was a PR agency. The second one was a digital media and publishing company listed on AIM, which is the junior stock exchange here in London. Um, and the third one was an online auction house, which was also listed on AIM. And what those three companies all had in common was that they raised capital and bought other companies. And so as a result of that, I became a bit of an expert in fundraising and M&A, never in an advisory capacity, never from the perspective of a an investor or a venture capitalist, but always from inside the company. So I know what the nuts and bolts are that you have to do to raise money and to execute M&A transactions. Um, and then I left, I left that world at uh, the end of 2010 and have run my own business since then. Um, and uh, a few years ago, I published my first book, Add Then Multiply, which you very kindly referenced. There it is. Um, and it's all about my FACE methodology, which stands for Fund, Acquire, Consolidate, and Exit. So it's basically how small businesses can take what I learned in bigger businesses and apply that um, as an execution strategy. And as a result of that book, I started getting invited to speak at events and things. And I was speaking at an event about three and a half years ago. And after my talk, a woman came up and asked me why so little funding went to female founders. And I looked at her and I said, I have no idea, but I'll find out. And I have to say that that's been a life-changing question. Um, I started to do the research. It was incredible what I found out. Um, the ratio of funding going to female entrepreneurs in the USA has never broken through 3%. Uh, and in fact, in the latest statistics published by PitchBook just this week, um, in 2022, it fell to 2%. Uh, 
Um, that's still better than it is in Europe, where it's 1%. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's an unbelievable situation. And there's, there's so much information and evidence from reliable and reputable sources like Boston Consulting Group and McKinsey and big international banks that show the, the very clear outperformance of businesses that have gender diversity in their leadership. Um, and yet, for some reason, the venture capital industry continues not to invest in female founders. And that led to me writing my second book, uh, Funded Female Founders. So thanks very much for the plugs on the books. Um, and yeah, I'm running a, I'm now running a, a social, so I run Add Then Multiply, which is my consulting business. And then I'm running a social enterprise called Funding Focus, which is all about raising awareness and providing education. And during the process of writing the, the second book, I came to the very clear conclusion that to do something about this, I need to get money behind it. And so I am currently working on raising a fund that will invest in uh, female founders. I can't say a lot more about that because of regulatory constraints, um, but uh, yeah, watch this space and um, check out funding-focus.com for more news. Thank you, David. All of that is that is so exciting, and I uh, I really appreciate you know just like reading through your books as well. I just really appreciate the sort of very pragmatic approach. You know, like this is a problem. You know, this is how you solve it. And like like you said, you know, you do need to put the money behind it to harness that talent and 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 that entrepreneurship. And so little of the funding does end up going to female founders. And um, you know, I have my own you know set of opinions about that. Uh, as well, but we'll, we'll get to that in, in in just a second. I'd love to get your insights as well. But um, you know, just uh, sort of when I was reading your book, uh, you know, add then multiply, and the the way you talk about sort of this like pace, you know, that SMEs need to take, and like you know, the different strategies for fundraising, and how important it is to be um, you know quick. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest uh, challenges that SMEs face when it comes to just simple fundraising? Simple fundraising. Um, I think for a lot of them, they're just they're, they're they don't know how to go about it, and they're very very cautious. Um, you, you've kind of got you've kind of got two ends of the spectrum. You've got those who go out there and you know this is going to be a billion dollar company. It's going to be amazing and all that. And, and that's kind of one end. And the other end of the spectrum is, is the people that go like, well, I just run a small business. Can I raise money? How do I do that? I wouldn't know who the, I wouldn't know the first person to talk to. And one of the other challenges I've discovered with SME business owners, particularly founders, is in the early stages of their company, they like to keep everything under control and they're not willing to let go. And if they're wanting to look at scaling through raising money and either investing in buying other companies or investing in building teams or investing in product development, they've got to let go and bring in other people into their organization, other skilled and qualified people. And in many cases, they'll sit there and go, oh, but those people are so expensive. And so they carry on trying to do it all themselves. And I've, I've found that where a founder is unwilling to let go, it's only in very, very rare cases that that founder can sustainably break through a million dollars in revenue because you can't control everything. And to break through a million dollars in revenue, unless you're very, very lucky, you've got to have a, a team of people with you. So, if for, so for founders who are looking to scale, 
you know, you, and you can do it gradually and you don't need to hire people full time. You can get them on contract through the gig economy. Um, but you need to have a team of people to support you and help you in that growth. I think that's a, it's such a valid point. It's just getting that right mix of people, you know, that can support and run with the vision and, and actually make it happen. You know, just going off of that, um, you know, a, a, a lot of times, you know, like for like, um, for say like a startup uh, SME, you've raised your, you know, maybe your pre-seed fund, like say you've mm -hmm. raised like, you know, your $250,000 or something. Yep. Um, is it more important to uh, how do you strategize, you know, putting putting that money? Like, do you immediately go and, you know, start hiring the right people and investing in them, of course? Or do you sort of worry more about your runway? You you worry more about, like, I want to stay alive for, like, a whole year, so I'm going to spend a little less maybe on the people and, you know, just like, keep the, the company running longer. Which of those two um, paths would you, would you recommend? Well, neither and both. <laughs> Um, I think the reality is that when you put your business plan together and you go through the due diligence process with an investor, they're going to stress test that business plan and then they're going to ex they're going to expect you to execute that business plan. So if your business plan says I'm raising 250 grand and I need that, I need 100,000 to invest in this particular piece of technology and I need to hire a sales uh, manager and I need to spend this much on marketing, then they're going to expect you to do that. And if you deviate from that, then your investor is going to get very upset because they've put their money in on the basis of the plan that you've shared with them and on the basis of the, the trust that's been developed during the negotiations and due diligence process. And so, so it's always about executing the plan, whatever the plan is. Now, most investors wouldn't say, right, we're going to put in 250 grand, but let's only spend 10 now and 10 a little later and 50 a little later. No, they want you to execute the plan. So that's that's what you've got to do yeah. equally. Yeah. And this is a great one for, in, for, for founders to ask of investors during the negotiation process is invariably things are going to go wrong. You've set out a plan, but life doesn't happen according to a plan. And one of my favorite expressions came from Mike Tyson, who said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes in business and especially in early stage businesses, yeah. from time to time, you're going to get punched in the face. Yeah. And what you need to do then is work out, OK, this has happened. What do we do next? How do we recover from this? Do we need to do we need to take a little pivot here or or do we need to change the the, the focus here? And what I always say to founders is when those kinds of things happen, involve your investors, let them know what's going on. Because investors are smart people. They've been in business before. They've run businesses before. They know that stuff happens. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's all about how you communicate it, how you manage it, um, and, and how you resolve those issues in conjunction with your investors when you've raised external funding. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So important to recognize because, you know, because like as, as founders, as like as entrepreneurs, it's, it's so easy to get in the mindset where like investors are people you must always impress. You must always look perfect. You're constantly pitching even after mm -hmm. they invested in you. It's so important to recognize that, you know, like at some point they do become part of the team. You know, they're, yep. they're on your team, like quite literally. Yep. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, and also just sort of talking about you know being flexible and you know being able to pivot um how important uh do you think being 
flexible with the vision uh, and and being um, you know being quick to adapt to to changes as for um, any startup founder to scale. Mm, that's a great one. So for me, the vision is the why. It's the long term. It's out there. I'm a founder. And I discovered a gap in the market or I had an idea for something that the market needs and it's out there. It's 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 a long way away. And I have this vision. And my advice to founders is hold fast to your vision because that's what gets you out of bed every day. That's what gets you out of bed on the days where you're worried you can't make payroll. That's what gets you out of bed on the days where your senior tech engineer has resigned because Google offered them a better job. That's what gets you out of bed on the on the days that are just tough. It's what gets you out of bed on the days that are good. So hold fast to your vision, that long term, big picture. Why? You know, the, the, the kind of the Simon Sinek. This is the why. That's yeah. that's absolutely yeah. rock solid. But then if you if you think about it in the context of GPS navigation, yeah. your vision is your destination. And you're here today and you've got a roadmap that you think is going to work out, but then there will be a car accident on the road ahead or something else will happen or one of those other Mike Tyson punches in the face will happen. And there you have to be flexible because if you're saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to drive down, um, uh, I'm going to drive down Pacific coast highway from San Francisco to LA, which is something I have done and it's a beautiful route. Um, but I'm going to drive down Pacific coast highway. And then all of a sudden you discover that the highways closed at big Sur. Well, you're not just going to stop at Big Sur and wait for the highway to reopen. Yeah. You'll do a detour and go on to I-5 and then get down to where the PCL, uh, PCH uh, opens again and carry on. And it's exactly like those kinds of things. So, so vision, long term, absolutely rock solid. And in fact, if you start to waver from that, you need to really ask yourself some serious questions. But the route to get to the vision you've got to be flexible and adapting all the time to the changing conditions of the market. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, um, it's, it's really important that you bring up, you know, how uh, that, that, that destination needs to be, you know, more like static and like everything else, the way to get to the destination can potentially change, but there's just so much, um, you know, co conflicting information out there, you know, about your own business. Sometimes like if you, um, are just sort of starting out, you do an accelerator or, you know, when you're going and talking to VCs, uh, one thing I've commonly heard is the venture narrative, you know, business having a venture narrative and uh, different people will just tell you different sorts of things. It's like, you know, this business has potential, but maybe if you could frame it differently for to fit within a particular VC uh, or like, you know, to, to be able to sell to this particular market. But then is that really deviating from your own mission or, uh, your your vision or you know what's what's the limit to, to yeah you know and 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 that's a tough one uh, i mean my my gut feeling is there are so many potential investors out there sure they're hard to find sure it's hard to get in front of them you know and and all that but if you if you find an investor and i, I hear stories about this if you find an investor and you've got your your vision and all of a sudden they say well actually no it's not over here it's over here yeah. well if all you're doing is trying to go out and build something to make a ton of money then fine follow the investor and change your vision and 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 you know go out there and make a ton of money and fine but yeah. most entrepreneurs that i know hold fast to that vision 
and they need to be willing to tell the investors, no, this is my vision, this is why. And, you know, sometimes those conversations can get difficult, but it's, it's, it's wrong. In my opinion, it's wrong of the investor, especially in early stage businesses. You know, it might be different in private equity where you're effectively selling control of your company to another, to a private equity house, and then they're going to do something. Well, at that stage, you've kind of cashed out to a large degree. You may still be involved. You may not. But in the early stage business, it's all about the investor backing the founder. So hold fast. Great, great. That's that's very that's very reassuring because um, I, I think like and, sorry and because if it doesn't work with that investor, then they're not the right match for you anyway. Yeah. And the worst thing you can do is get into a relationship with an investor that isn't a good one. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like a marriage. Yep. Yeah. Totally. They're going to be on your cap table, and it's going to show up in your future. Yeah. Uh, investment runs as well. That is and such a, and a very good friend of mine who who she she was actually involved in a private equity uh, uh, company where she was brought in as the, as the new CEO. Um, but um, she said when 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 the relationship breaks down, they're all over you like a rash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I've I've heard some horror stories and read them as well. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's it's just so. Um, I think it's just when you're early state, it's just so hard to say no to money, right? Like when you're, it is. It's, it's on the table, you're just being asked to maybe do like a pivot, say like you're like a, say you you started out as like a B2B business and they're saying, no, go, go to B2C or vice versa. You know, you started out B2C and then they're like, it's easier to, one of the things I hear is it's just easier to raise money for B2B businesses. So I see a lot of my friends sort of doing these pivots from going from B2C to like B2B just so they could get that sort of funding. Um, because there's just so much noise and there's just so much uh, conflicting information and advice out there. But what you're saying, it's uh, I think it's very important because as an entrepreneur, like when you wake up, you know, every morning you have that vision, you sort of know that very well. You know, that's what you want to do and you want to build relationships with people that will support um, that vision. It's it's a classic bind because the founder has the idea. And they've come up with the prototype or the or the model or the whatever. And they know that the market is out there. But until they raise money, there's no business. There's no, yeah. So yeah. it's it, it and it's really difficult because, you know, all of a sudden someone comes along and kind of, you know, flashes the cash in front of you. And I know people don't do it in cash anymore, but flashes the cash in front of you. And it's like, yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. uh. <laughs> just be really really careful um by all means start a dialogue but one of the things i always tell founders is it's not just the investor doing due diligence on you you've got to do due diligence on them yeah and i always tell founders if they're starting to get into that kind of a relationship then go onto the investor's website and see who else they've invested in yeah. and phone up the founders and say, hey, I'm in discussions with Fred Smith from XYZ Ventures. Um, I see that you're you you know, you're one of the portfolio companies. Can you tell me what it's like? Yeah, yeah. Very good advice there. Very, very important to do that homework on the, on the investors as well. And not just, you know, stay in the mindset of constantly pitching to them to also recognize the value in your, your own business and, and, and yeah. make those decisions wisely. 
um, and, and transitioning from, you know, just, um, you know, transitioning to talking a little bit more about VCs uh, and fundraising, uh, how do you see the playing field as different for, you know, women and minorities in, in comparison with other cities? Well, it's kind of shaped like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I did a lot of research when I was writing the Funded Female Founders book, and I was—I I, I mean, the, the 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 bibliography in the book is about six pages long, just all of the stuff that I referenced, and I felt it was important to do that so that interested readers could go out and 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 read that kind of research. But there are a number of there are a number of factors that are really driving them. Um, I think one of them is inherent gender bias. And one of the best pieces of research that I read came from Lego, you know, the, the little toy bricks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lego looked at the um, playing habits of children from the age of, I mean, not quite newborn, but from when they were first able to play up until I think the age of 10 or 12. Right. And they found no signs of gender bias up until about the age of two and a half. So children are not born with gender bias. It is not a natural thing. But by the age of three, there were very clear signs of gender bias in terms of boys were doing construction and playing with trucks and, and, and that kind of stuff. And girls were playing with dolls and doing things around the home. And, and so that's clearly coming from the parents. And, you know, so I think it's going to take it's going to take some time to change that. And, you know, I, I, I look at I look at young families now and, and you know, I mean, my, my kids are grown up, but I've, I've got a young grandson. He's four months old and it's going to be fascinating to see how he develops. But I know that my my daughter and son in law are very concerned about, you know, not bringing across gender bias. So so gender bias is unquestionably a big one. Yeah. Um, and, and that manifests itself in different ways. One of the other great things I, I um, looked at was it, was, it was actually a TEDx talk by a woman called uh, Dr. Dana Kanza, that's uh, K-A-N-Z-E. And she was doing her PhD studies at Columbia in New York. Um, and she looked at all of the um, TechCrunch startup battle pitch competitions between 2010 and 2017 and put this into her academic analysis and, and all of that, you know, in terms of how the, how the pitches went and the questioning and all of that. And she found no difference in the way that men and women pitched, but she found huge difference in the way that questions were asked by the investors of the people pitching. Yeah. And it was 67% of the questions asked of male founders were what's called promotion questions. How are you going to double your market share? How are you going to hire 100 new employees? How are you going to scale this? And 66% of the questions asked of female founders were what's called prevention questions. Mm-hmm. How are you going to protect your customers from the competition? How are you going to stop your employees from leaving? How are you going to stop this from happening? Yeah. And it was just, I mean, huge. And then the really interesting thing she found when drilling further into that data was that people who were asked prevention questions and answered with a promotion response were 14 times more likely to secure funding. So the tip is, no matter what question you're asked, give a positive response. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I could I could talk about this whole subject for hours. 
Um, but but th th there's a couple of clear examples. Um, I, I think the, the, the final one I will give is that um, for a lot of women, the world of venture capital is a very murky and opaque world. Yeah. And if they don't have networks to break into it, it's really, really difficult. And I don't know why. I haven't done any research on this. I don't know why, but it does seem that men seem to have more connections into the world of venture capital, probably because the majority of venture capitalists are men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's such a valid point, uh, especially like when you mentioned like the nature of questions asked. And um, I, I have more sort of a limited perspective on it, you know, uh, mostly limited to my, my own and, you know, my colleagues and friends uh, experiences. But, um, you know, there's just like a level of intimidation that, you know, comes from yes. being asked those types yes. of questions. Uh, well, not just intimidation, but blatant sexism. Um, I mean... <laughs> One of the, this is probably the most extreme example, but while I was researching the book, one of my friends sent me an article um, from Australia where a female founder had agreed a deal with a male investor. And as they're sitting down to sign the documents, he said, you are going to sleep with me, aren't you? Wow. I mean, yeah. Yeah. sorry, what planet is this guy on? Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 but I've also I've also heard stories of of founders where, you know, everything's agreed in the plan and all of a sudden they come back to the founder and say, well, you know, you've got in the in the in the budget that you're going to pay yourself a salary of 100 grand, but you can only have 75. And, yeah. and you know, hang on, we've agreed the plan and, and, and doing these just macho testosterone -y kind of things at the last minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, this reminds me of a, of a talk that I was attending at, at Haas. This was a women in leadership conference. And, uh, um, you know, Vicky Sai from Tatcha, she was she was there, you know, talking about some of her experience, um, um, you know, just uh, running her own business and just working, you know, on Wall Street before, uh, you know, she even became an entrepreneur. And she said similar uh, sorts of things, you know, being mistaken for, you know, someone being uh, being told that I'd like to talk to someone more senior, even, you know, when you're going in as a CEO, um, there, those things are demoralizing. And then uh, she did relate to one experience that she was saying that she had, uh, she was working with um, a, a, a man, you know, who was like her business partner at the time. And she asked him, like, why don't you be the CEO? I think you'd have a better time, you know, talking to uh, VCs and fundraising. And he told her, you do the work. You are the CEO. You're you're putting in all the time. And for yep. her, um, she was saying, just say strategically, you know, like it just felt like, you know, there was so much self-doubt there. And yes. also just wanting yep. to, you know, just run with, you know, whatever was going on. And of course she didn't, you know, we were in, you know, she is where she is today, but that sort of stuff, it's, it's very real. And it, it it's happens. very real. It's very real. Um, one of the, one of the women I talk about in, in, in the book, she runs a business here in London, but she's, um, she's originally from the USA and she started her career on wall street. So she's female, gay, African-American. Yeah. Older. And she's, she's had it. She's had it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's faced all sorts of bias there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and 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 also, you know, even in groups that are more friendly. So, I mean, the Bay Area is kind of this like wonderful liberal bubble. Uh, yeah. But even in in places like this, where you know there is that factor when you walk into a room, and almost no one looks like you. 
or can relate to you know, your experiences on a personal level. That in itself is like, oh, should I even go talk to anyone? Like, you know, how do I do Correct. this? Um, Correct. What, had, go, go ahead. What, what I always recommend to founders when they're feeling that way is do more research on the on the investors and find the ones that are like you. Find the ones that invest in people like you. So I, I again, one of the women featured in, in my book um, was in the Bay Area, uh, now running a very successful business. Um, uh, she's um, uh, Singaporean Chinese. And she ended up connecting with a VC firm in the Bay Area that invests only in immigrants. And there are plenty, plenty of them here, especially yeah. now. Yeah. And and which brings me to my you know, next question is the the relevance of community, you know, in uh, promoting uh, more diversity in entrepreneurship. Um, and I'll sort of lead in with uh, something that I experienced. It was a DocuSign conference. This was last year. I believe it was sometime in April or, or May. Uh, it was DocuSign con- uh, conference. And uh, I think the uh, the head of legal at DocuSign or someone very senior, I think the director uh, of, um, no, it was the VP of legal, VP of sales, something like that. And, you know, they were, they were giving a talk and I was just sort of hanging out there. I wanted to really, you know, connect with them and say hi to them. And I just didn't feel comfortable just approaching them, you know, sort of out of the blue, because it was more like, I don't really know. This doesn't really, because you doubt yourself so much. You're like, you have the qualifications to be there. You know, you, um, you are there for a reason, but you do doubt yourself. Like maybe I should not uh, go bother anyone. I shouldn't like rock the boat or whatever. So sort of going up to them and um, I sort of turned around and started leaving. And there was this very kind woman standing right behind me. She's from Simplify, um, another legal tech company. And she was like, aren't you gonna go say hi to them? And I said, yeah, I, I don't think this is going to be a good idea. I don't think I'll do it. And she was like, no, you know, she just put her, uh, hand on my back she's like no you should go say hi to her she's actually a friend of mine I'll like you know I'll introduce you to them and uh, it was intimidating enough for me to just go reach out to another woman you know to just uh, introduce myself maybe seek mentorship or connect with her so imagine going to like a very sort of VC very sort of like you know white male driven environment even if they are welcoming you know because of your own sometimes the experiences you've been exposed to in the past, they can be a huge barrier. In, they uh, can, they can. And, 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 and kind of two things there. Um, so number one, imposter syndrome is alive and well. And, and, you know, everyone feels it to varying degrees in varying situations and things. Um, and, and really my advice for people there is if you're a founder and you've got a clear vision, believe in yourself and keep going. And the other part of the answer, and this was a piece of advice that was given to me early in my career, was we're all human beings. You know, we're all born naked. (laughs) We all, you know, we don't take anything with us when we die. Um, We all have the same issues where we get up and we eat and we go to the bathroom and all of that. We're, you know... Sure. So somebody happens to be a Wall Street executive and someone happens to be a venture capitalist and someone happens to be something else. Well, a whole bunch of them got COVID when the pandemic was on. You know, there was no there was no differentiator there. Oh, hang on. No, no. I'm a venture capitalist. You can't have COVID. You <laughs> yeah. know, we're all human beings at the end. And, yeah. and, and I know it can be scary, especially if you're in an environment and there's someone who's like, oh, this guy is so senior. 
And yet I've discovered that when you take the time to learn a little bit about these people so you can go up and you know introduce yourself and say, oh, hey, I, I saw you did this and I was so impressed and I just wanted to come in. People really appreciate that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because we're social animals. Yeah, yeah. And, and, they, if you get, and if you get one or two who are like, well, who are you? Well, yeah. they're not your friends. Yeah, yeah. Move on yeah. and find someone else. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just interacting with, you know, uh, very encouraging uh, people like you and uh, that person, you know, from Simplify who just who saw that moment of doubt in me. Exactly. Like, no, go ahead. You know, yeah. go go talk to that person. Yeah. I think that was yeah. such a powerful gesture. And and I yeah. think that's the relevance of community. So I wanted to hear from you. It's like, you know, what is the role of community? in the Oh, community is huge. Community is huge because. um Community gives you the ability to be with like-minded people, with people who might have been through the same or a similar experience as you're going through. And again, we're all human and, and you know, they might have been through that particular experience and you might have been through another particular experience and you can help each other. And, and so I think those kinds of communities are really important. And again, what I often say to people, if they're going to an event where they're feeling intimidated, well, take a friend, take a colleague from work, yeah. take someone with you, take someone with you who knows you well enough to G you up if you're having one of those moments of doubts and, and just say, no, David, carry on and go up and shake that person's hand. I think that's very powerful, and 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 you know, uh, I go back to the the talk from from uh, Vicky Tsai. You know, she was sort of talking about I forget uh, the paper she quoted in this, but she was talking about the uh, on average, you know, women, especially women of color, tend to rank themselves lower in ability, like their own self perception of their ability tends to be much lower than you know other demographics, which tend to think that. They're at least average or above average, but women of color tend to usually think that you know, like below, below average, and just being able to see people that look like you, uh, you know, that you can relate with, and you know, positions in those sorts of positions of power and uh, and influence, and sort of cheering others on, and having people stand beside you, and you know, encourage you and and cheer you on. I think it's just such a such a powerful powerful thing to experience. Like, very definitely and 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 you know in a, in a lot of cultures um a lot of cultures can be very patriarchal so i was i was on a call earlier today uh with a woman in delhi in india and she was talking about her family life and and you know from birth until the age of 19 her younger brothers got everything and she was just expected to help out and do whatever her mom told her and all that but got no recognition whatsoever and then tragically their father died and she was the only one who could go out and work to bring in money and all of a sudden she went from being a nobody to kind of the breadwinner yeah and 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 how strange that was as an impact on a family dynamic yeah. and you know that's only one example there are there are many other cultures that are very patriarchal yeah. Interestingly, there there are some that are matriarchal as well. Yeah, yeah. And and I think we could learn a lot from those ones. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I those, because you know, I mean, one of one of my favorite uh, things when I was researching the book um, 
was was reading Emmeline Pankhurst's autobiography. Emmeline Pankhurst led the suffragette movement in the UK. Mm-hmm. So she was the UK's version of Susan B. Anthony. Mm-hmm. And she had a quote at the beginning of her book, which went along the lines of, across the centuries, um, men have done deeds that have drenched the world in blood. And for those deeds, they get statues and monuments and songs and epics. Across the centuries, women have done deeds that have harmed no human life. But what recognition do they get? Very, that's very, very well put. And um, and you know, just going back to some of the cultural notions um, as as well. Like you know, there's just so many. Uh, you see barriers at so many different points in your life as well. Like you know, like when you're thinking about education or just like the treatment you get in comparison with maybe your male siblings. Uh, I think that just gets you used to this sort of mindset where it's like maybe like you know I should ask for a little less. And um, a very uh, successful female entrepreneur once told me that, like, you know, asking for less, you know, in the first place, like, you know, if you break out of that mindset and you start believing that I can ask for more, they're not going to get mad at me for asking for more. You know, that's like the first worst thing that happens is they'll say no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's okay. You know, they'll say no to, you know, anyone. You could be a man and they'll say no to you. It's just, you know, learning to ask for more uh, is, is so And that's where having your vision and sticking to your vision helps. And, you know, here's my vision and this is what I need to get to this stage of it. And this is what I need to get to this stage of it. And again, that's a fascinating one. Um, Women will tend to do the calculations that say, you know, I need $255,000. So that's what I'm going to ask for. Men will do the calculations and then they'll go out and ask for 2 million. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, could not have said it any better. That's, that's, that's absolutely, absolutely it. That's because if you're asking for maybe 2 million, then you're setting yourself up in a place where you could potentially negotiate between a million, you you're setting yourself up for that opportunity. But if you're already sort of setting the bar lower for yourself, lower than your potential, uh, yeah, um, really, uh, that that really does, uh, does resonate, uh, resonate with me. And uh, some of my uh, own experiences as well. When I first got into Berkeley, um, and I was preparing to, you know, leave India and you know move over here, uh, my parents have I've been very fortunate. They've been very like you know, um, I never felt any different from my brother. Uh, they really shielded me from a lot of this type of stuff. But we were at a family gathering, and uh, you know, a lot of relatives had questions that you could be like, she could be getting married. Why are you sending her off to a foreign country all by herself? And parents are like, well, she wants to be educated more. And they were like, well, you know, she can get married and then she can move abroad and then she could like, you know, go get a degree. So it's it's just these sorts of things. When you sort of grow up listening to these things, it does make you wonder what's my purpose? Like, you know, what are things I'm supposed to do? And uh, just interacting with um, with people that are, you know, very successful, you know, they're like totally killing it in their fields. For me, um, there's been plenty of women that have influenced me, like Olga Mack, uh, you know, being uh, one of like my biggest role models, just sort of going out there, uh, you know, being completely unapologetic, <laughs> asking for more, uh, you know, just like everyone else. And uh, just, I think the, the the wonder of the Bay Area as well, where it's such an accepting and such a nice community um, because amongst like entrepreneurs as well, uh, there's not that many female entrepreneurs that 
on average, if you go to, you know, like a startup conference, there's just going to be more uh, male uh, founders yep. than, than female. Yep. But those sorts of environments can still feel so welcoming because everyone's, you know, no one really treats you that differently. Uh, so there community. are communities. Yep. 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 Definitely. Great. That's such a wonderful note to end this conversation for now. I would love to continue this. I could go on about this um, for, for days and days. And I'm uh, looking forward to also continuing to read your read your book, David. And I thank highly you. recommend both of David's books. Uh, and uh, thank you once again for taking the time today, David, to talk with us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you so much, Ishwara. Great. And thanks again to all our listeners for tuning in every week. We're here every Thursday with a new episodes. So stay tuned and keep believing in the future of law. The practice of law is changing and we're here for it. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode of Rethinking Legal Ops. Follow us for more such insightful conversations about the transformative impact of legal tech. Also, follow Speed Legal and let us know in your comments and messages about how you leverage legal tech solutions to make your work more efficient. See you next time.